Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then also to Mark 2. We're going to go to both places as we continue today with this journey that we're on and that we're calling Leverage Your Life, and which, as I've been saying every single week, and I'm going to say it again, are you ready, is not a journey about your time. And it's not a journey about your talent, and it's not a journey about your treasure. Now, it involves those things, and it involves, by the way, everything else in your life as well, but it's not about those things. It comprehends them. It comes along like a paper towel and absorbs them all up and everything else as well. But fundamentally, it's a journey about following Jesus. We started out by saying, listen, To leverage your life is to follow Jesus, and to follow Jesus is to leverage your life. And so much of what we are doing in this journey together as a family is coming to grips with the reality that in Christ Jesus, we gain, and gain is the key word all the way through this journey. In Jesus Christ, we gain not only a Savior who by His life, death, burial, and resurrection forgives us and washes us and cleanses us, and makes us new, and calls us His own, and ushers us into the family of God, and secures by His labors an infinite and eternal life and blessing for us. Listen, nobody has any troubles getting to the fact that that's gain. What we're coming to grips with is the fact that in Christ Jesus we gain also a Lord, who by that same life, death, burial, and resurrection, guys, purchased not just some small part of us, but the whole of us. He comes claiming not just our sin. He comes claiming us. And what we're coming to grips with is the reality, well, that that too is gain, that that too is glorious, that that too is good, that that too is amazing, that that too is wonderful, that that too is mind-blowing. It's awesome. We have a Savior and a Lord. And in both senses, we gain. Now, the metaphor that we've been using week by week, you're familiar with it by now, is that of a great big metaphorical bag. We said that to leverage your life or to follow Jesus is kind of akin to this. It is to consciously, willfully, intentionally, knowingly gather up every different component in our life, time, talent, treasure, sin, issues, all that kind of stuff, everything that is yours, absolutely comprehensive, wipe it up like a napkin, absorb the whole of it, and then it is to put it into the great big metaphorical bag that Jesus, metaphorically speaking, hands to us in grace for our gain together with our salvation. He comes claiming us, the whole of us. And then once we get it all in there, you know the drill, don't you? It's to get in there. And then it's to pull the sides of the bag up over your head and to tie it off, cool bow. You're working on that, right? to grab it from the inside, to hop it over to Jesus, remember? And to deposit it joyfully, because there is joy in this, great joy in this, at His feet. Why? As an act of worship in response to the gospel, in response to who Jesus Christ is, in response to what Jesus Christ, by His life, death, burial, and resurrection for us, not only has done for us, but evermore will yet do for us. Guys, following Jesus is gain. It's big game. And then it's to get up every day after that and to take charge of every one of these desires that well up in the hearts of every single one of us to kind of quietly or sometimes to very loudly 
reach up and untie that bow and let the sides of the bag fall down and step back out of the bag and take back out of the bag those things that we've already given over to the Lord that we might leverage them for ourselves. And instead of doing that, crucifying those desires as we go, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, it is instead to follow the Lord wherever He takes us and to dispense of our lives however He sees fit. And that's gain. It's ironic. See, that's the irony of this whole journey. In releasing the things that we cling to for joy, all of a sudden we find that our hands are open. And you know what else? We find that they're full again. They're full with the joy that we were looking for and the things that we were clinging to. They're more full than they were when we opened them and let those other things go. In releasing the things that we cling to for meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life, uh uh-oh, guess what happens? Meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life. In ever-increasing and growing measures. In releasing the things that we cling to as though in them we have life, we begin to truly live and find the life that we're looking for. So with that in mind, last week we talked about our treasure. Remember that? It was pretty memorable. And I told you two things. I said, the first thing I want to tell you about your treasure is that it's not your treasure. It all came from God. It all belongs to God. And it's to be managed for God. Wow. And then the second thing that I told you about your treasure is that for all that the Bible has to say about your treasure, and it has a lot, it has a lot to say about your treasure, here is the thing that it says more frequently than anything else. It says to be generous with it. It says to give it away as the Lord directs. And He directs, doesn't He? We talked last week about two kinds of giving, two levels just for simplicity's sake. We talked about level one giving, which is the tithe. We talked about level two giving, which is giving beyond the tithe. And I just want to pause and say, listen, if this is your church or you're checking us out and you're thinking maybe this is the place that you want to join and be a part of and you missed last week, I'm begging you, you need to go back and listen to it because we introduce language, concepts, and ideas that we're going to continue to use from here forward. Read the Frequently Asked Questions brochure online. Listen to the message. Interact with the study guide. The first thing that we talked about when we talked about treasure last week is that, you know what? Came from God, belongs to God, is to be managed for God, and here's what he says most. Be generous with it, guys. Give it away as I direct, says the Lord. So today, we're going to take up the topic of time and talents, and guess what I'm going to say? Well, first thing I'm going to say about your time and talents is that it's not whose? It's not yours. It's not. It all came from God. It belongs to God, and well, it's to be used and managed for God. And the second thing that I want to tell you is that for all that the Bible has to say about your time and talents, here's what it says most of all. You ready? Be generous with it. Give it away and use it as the Lord directs you to do. It's huge. And to that end, I want to begin by looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with you guys, where the Apostle Paul comes along to us and he gives us what is perhaps the most familiar analogy for the church. Let's just personalize this. The most familiar analogy for us collectively as a group. And it's the analogy of a human body. In other words, he comes to us and says, okay, I want to tell you guys something about you. Here you go. The church of Jesus Christ is like a human body with Jesus Christ himself being the head of the body. So then whose body is it? 
It's His body. Who directs the body? Who uses the body? Who dispenses of the body? Who lives through the body? The Lord Christ Himself, He's like, I've got to tell you something about you guys. You guys, together, here we go. A body, Jesus Christ is the head, His body, and each one of us is a different part of the body. And so then here's the question. Which part are you? And are you playing your part? Because here's the deal. If you're not, it's disabling to the whole body. And that's exactly where Paul goes. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 14, he says this. He says, For the body does not consist of one member or of one part, but of many. Okay? So you have hands and feet and fingers and toes and hair. And, you know, when you were a kid, you would sing that. You've got all these different parts of your body. That's what he's saying. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. Got it. And then he says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. No, it would still be a part of the body. It would just be a part of the body that isn't playing its part. And that's disabling. Like the whole body is ready to go and the foot's going, checking out. So how do we get there then? Get the idea? He goes on, he says, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. It would still be a part of the body. It's just a part of the body that's not playing its part. And as a result, the whole body is rendered deaf. It's disabling. He goes on, he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is God, and then here comes a key word, arranged. God designed the members in the body, and just in case you think you're off the hook, he then says, each one of them as he chose. God has a design for this body. For each part. He says, if all were a single member, if everything was nothing but a foot, where would be the whole body? Wow. The answer to that is simple. It would be without the sense of touch. That's the hand. It would be without the sense of hearing. That's the ear. It would be without the sense of sight. That's the eye. The sense of smell. That's the nose. The sense of taste. That's the mouth. It would be completely insensible and utterly incapable of doing the work of the head of the body. It would be rendered useless. Guys, if we as a church are going to accomplish our mission of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, we need everybody here to know their part and play it. I was just thinking about that this week. That probably surprises you. I just started running through a list. You know what we need? This is a non-exhaustive list. We need our musicians to play. We need our singers to sing. We need our tech people. Here's the deal. We need a whole team of tech people to form a team of tech people. Like we need that. We need our teachers to teach. When we started this journey two weeks ago, we had 50 people signed up for community groups that didn't have a community group because all our community groups are full. Now, look, I'm not going to call you out, but there's a lot of great teachers in this congregation. 
We need our teachers to teach. We need our leaders to lead. Wow, we are leadership heavy in this room. And it is awesome and unbelievable when you guys step up and lead. We need our leaders to lead. We need those who work well with kids to sign up and work well with kids. We need our prayers to pray. And by that, I don't mean that, some, you know, that we don't all need to be praying. We all need to be praying. But you know what? For some of you, that's your thing, isn't it? We desperately need those prayers. Here's what else. We need our givers to give. And I point that out because not too many people realize that's a spiritual gift. It was actually my dad that pointed that out to me. My parents put me through college, okay? They paid, like, for all of it, and I was really expensive. I was very generous toward me in college. I don't even want to know what the number was, but I guarantee you it was ugly. They paid for the whole thing. I graduated no debt. Then I announced I'm going to law school, so you can imagine their delight. So if you think undergraduate was expensive, oh man, I went to private school and it was like, and I graduated, how much in debt? Zero. Zero. So then I start working as a lawyer. I get about four years into the deal and I'm feeling like the Lord is calling me into ministry. I mean, I totaled out at about 10 years of being a lawyer, but I needed to start going to seminary. So I announced to my parents, hey, you know what? I'm going to start going to seminary and I think maybe this is what God is doing. And they laughed and they cried and then they needed smelling salts and it was... It was a really remarkable conversation. They called me back later that day and said, we want to pay for you to go to seminary. And I said, whoa, look, this is actually something you don't have to pay for anymore. I, you know, I'm, I have a job. I actually make money now, you know, which is I'm sure they were waiting for that day. Here's what he said. He said, I was reading through Romans 12 and I'm just reading the spiritual gifts. And I'm thinking to myself, which one am I? Ever asked that question? So I started ticking through the list, you know, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a this, I'm not a that, I'm not a this, I'm not a that, I'm not a this, he's like despairing, I'm not a this, I'm not a that. And then all of a sudden I came to this one and said, and to the one who contributes, let him give generously. He said, that's me. That's my thing. Let me express my gift. We need that. We need that here. There is a could and should be preferable future for this church that will not be if every part does not start playing its part. And it will not be if we don't get level one and level two giving and those who have the gift of giving don't get get at it. It's not going to happen. You know, one of the really cool things that the Lord has been doing, He's been growing us a number. I just figured it out, you know, the other day. I mean, we've grown a lot in the last year even. It's just, it's almost striking. And the Lord is doing it. I mean, we are not good enough to fabricate any of this. It's just Him and all of us kind of just sort of stand in awe of it and go, wow, this is amazing. You know, there He goes again, which is really cool. But we're growing not only in number, but we're growing in depth. And that's the most significant thing as far as I'm concerned and in ethic. We are becoming a selfless people, a serving people, and as a result, we're growing an influence and an impact in the community, and all of these things are increasing their demand on our staff. I don't know if you guys have interacted with me on email lately, but usually my emails are like two words long. Sometimes it's just a number. It's 10-4. That's it. Sounds good. Will do. I'm not kidding. 
If I have to write, like if it's going to take more than that, normally what you get back at this point is an email that says something like, got your email, thinking about it, we'll eventually get back with you, be patient. Can't keep up. If you get an email from Matt, it's going to be at like 1.24 in the morning. I don't know what he's doing at 1.24 in the morning. I, like I get them all the time, 11.59. I'm like, I was in bed an hour and a half ago. Now I'm older than him, that much. <laughs> but seriously, we had the generous church organization come in, and that's who you did the survey for. And they did a whole, spent a whole day with us, met with all different kind of contingents of people within our congregation and leadership and so forth. One of the first things they said to us in their report is, you guys are maxed out. It's like a funnel and there's a clog. You need administrative help. Well, that's not in the budget. You need somebody else on staff who can take know the word, live the word to a whole new level and can help integrate our church and school in ways that we've not been integrated. Well, I didn't know there, that isn't there either, et cetera, et cetera. There's a could be and a should be. And our prayer is that if every one of us just starts playing our part, man, it's going to happen for the glory of Christ in the midst of this city. If we're going to accomplish our mission as a church, then we need each person here to know their part and to play their part, or really to use our language to find their thing and do their thing. Find your thing and do your thing. This city needs for that as well. This city needs for this church to have fully operational eyes and ears and, you know, a mouth and heart and hands and feet. It needs for us to have an eye that sees the plight, just as one example, of the orphan, and and then to help all the rest of us see it too, that we might move the body to help the orphan. It needs an ear who hears the cry of the unborn and makes it heard to the rest, that we might come to the aid. It needs hands to serve the homeless, feet to stand for the truth, hearts for the least and the lost and the left out that move and mobilize all the rest of the parts as the head who is Christ directs and mouths that speak the truth and the gospel. If we're going to accomplish our mission as a church, then we need every person here to put it in the bag, man to find their thing and do their thing, to know their part, and to play it. And I want to give you an example of this. We see an example of what this can look like in Mark chapter 2. Mark here tells us about four different guys who kind of, you know, I think they got it. I mean, it was in the bag, you know, belongs to God, to be dispensed by God, to be given away generously, their time, their talents. And I think they had found their thing and they were doing it. The story takes place in the city of Capernaum. It's a little seaport town. It's on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. I've been there a number of times. I've been there with many of you guys. It was the hometown of Peter. In fact, if you go there today, there's like this thing that looks like a spaceship that's actually a church that is built over the excavation of what they really and truly believe to have been Peter's house. It's a house in the city that basically was turned into a church and there were mosaics and paintings and all kinds of writings on the wall that said to them, okay, Peter lived here. It must be in this particular place. It's kind of neat. And you can see that. It's the hometown of Andrew. 
It's the home base for Jesus' operation in the Galilee region. But for purposes of this story, it's the hometown of a guy who is nameless and faceless to us. All that we know is that he was paralyzed and he had four really good friends. We know that. And I want you to imagine what his life might have been like. You know, paralysis is tough in any age, tougher then than now. No rehab centers, no treatment centers, no in-home nursing care, you know, no insurance that would pay for somebody to come over and help. None of that stuff. No handicapped bathrooms. And I don't mean to be overly graphic, but I want you to feel the indignity of this for a moment. There were none of the modern-day conveniences by which one might be discreet if one was in a position of this, like this man. Didn't exist. How do you get around? There were no cars. There were no vans. No ambulance going to come pick you up. There's no handicap accessible vehicles. There's nothing called a wheelchair. None of that stuff. This guy's life was confined to what this scripture, this translation calls a bed, but it was really a mat. It's structured. You can pick him up and it had bedding on top of it, but it was about three feet wide and about six feet long. And the only time this guy ever got out of the house is when his buddies, these four guys, came and picked him up with their hands, arms, back, legs, feet, and community and carried him out of the house, which probably they did every day. And I say that only because the only way this guy could make any money and contribute to the household income was as a beggar. And so it was very common for people like this to be picked up and carried off to the side of the road, in this case in Capernaum, and laid hopefully in the shade because it is swelteringly, blisteringly hot there. And then they would just cry out to people who passed by and who would give them a little bit of money. And then at the end of the day, his four buddies would come along. They'd each grab a corner with their hands and arms and back and legs and feet and whatnot, and they would carry him home, at which point he would need to be fed, he would need to be bathed, his bedding would need to be changed, his clothing would need to be changed, and so forth. And to make matters worse for a guy like that in the first century, pretty much everybody in town, and probably even he thought, that this was the judgment of God on him. It was just assumed that, I mean, if you had something that difficult to deal with in life, that the Lord was judging you for some sin. So you can imagine just kind of playing through your life and going, good grief, man, which one was the whopper that landed me in this? Until the Lord comes to town. And if you don't know the story, you know, then you probably assume that Jesus comes walking into town. He walks through the main street. He sees the guy laying there on the side of the road. The guy cries out for healing. You know, you see this in other stories. And Jesus walks over and bam, he's healed. And then that's the end of the story. It's not the way that it happened. And so then what are the other alternatives? Well, maybe somebody sent somebody to Jesus. One of the four guys, perhaps, go fetch Jesus, bring him back to the man. He's on the side of the road. Bam, he's healed. No. Jesus goes to his house. No. Okay, how does this work? These four guys take him to Jesus. And they show up about 10 minutes too late. See, if you show up 10 minutes late here, you still get a good seat. If Jesus was preaching, however, standing room only, Jesus is preaching in a house. It might have been that house of Peter. Do you know how big that whole house is? About the size of your bedroom. So it is packed out. 
It's standing room only. They're lining up five deep at the door. They're standing around what windows there were, pressing in to hear from the Lord. These guys show up with their buddy in tow, literally, and they can't get in. Mark tells us this in verse 3 of chapter 2. He says, And they came, bringing to him to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. So there they are. And when they couldn't get near him because of the crowd, there were too many people crammed in the house is the idea. They gave up and they went home. And that's the end of the story? No, it's not the end of the story. And here's why. Because at least one of them had an eye for this man's plight, an ear for this man's cry, hands and feet and legs and arms and all of this stuff put at disposal because they had heart for this man's need. It's all in the bag, man. And they're knowing their thing and they're doing their thing. So they show up, they can't get in. They go up a stairway on the side of the house. Up onto the roof, which I've shared with you in the past, is a flat roof commonly in those days, and it was used as a patio. The walls of the, of the places in Capernaum were made of stone. And when you go to the Galilee, and I hope to take some of you there again, it looks like at some point in history, it rained a rainstorm of stone on this land. There's like stone everywhere. So they built out of it. I mean, heck, you would have had to build out of it just to clear it out of the way to make a space. So the walls are made of stone, but then what they would do is they would lay timbers at various intervals, okay, across the top of the stone, and then on top of the stone, or the top of the timbers, rather, they would put mattings of branches, and then on top of that, they laid about a foot of mud, and then on top of that, grass would grow. And in the cool of the day, these guys would, you know, go up onto their roof and sort of hang on the patio, if you will. So these guys show up with their buddy in tow. They can't get in the door. They can't get in the window. There is no shot at them getting inside, and they will not give up. So they tote him up the staircase, set him down on his mat on top of the roof on the grass, and they just start digging through with their hands. It's a determined group. Verse 3, it says, And they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. And when they had made an opening that had to be at least three feet wide and six feet long, when they had made an opening, they let down the bed or the mat on which the paralytic lay. So you can picture it. You're in the house with Christ. It's hot, stuffy, standing room only. If you're, you know, kind of claustrophobic like me, you might be freaking out a little bit. Not a lot of showers happening back then, not going to lie. Probably doesn't smell great. People crowding in around the doors and the windows, not a lot of breeze blowing through. Jesus is full on into his message, dead center in the middle. All of a sudden, something's happening on the roof. Something that's causing little pieces of dirt to start falling through the mattings of the branches. You know, and like, the, and the, whatever the something is, it's getting bigger and it's getting worse and more dust and more dirt is falling. Like it's getting in your eye at this point. Some, some point it's like getting dusty in the room and people are starting to choke and cough. The homeowner is calling State Farm. He's freaking out. He doesn't know what to do. Definite claim for vandalism. Finally, the sermon is over, right? Because this takes a while to dig through, I would think. And everybody's waiting and watching as the little hole in the roof gets bigger and bigger and you see four pairs of hands 
maybe even bloodied a bit, and four really sweaty, muddy faces. And then finally, you see this paralyzed guy on a six-foot-long mat, no doubt with ropes on each corner, being very carefully, with a coordinated effort, lowered down by all four of his buddies until he lands in front of the Lord. And I think that it's probably pretty clear to the Lord and to everyone there why they had done this. They want their buddy to be healed. Isn't that obvious? That's why they went through this great effort. But notice what Jesus does in verse 5. It says, and when Jesus, what? Because it's important. When Jesus saw their faith. I want to pause for a moment. We spent a long time in the book of James. And what did we see there? Faith is visible. It shows up in your life. It, it, it's demonstrable. You can't help but keep it in. You can't keep it in. In fact, when it exists, it starts showing up. When it exists, it starts coming out. It comes out in the way that you speak. It comes out in the things that you do. It comes out in the way that you live. It doesn't mean you're perfect by any means, but it does mean you're different. Jesus saw their faith. It doesn't say he heard their profession. He saw it in action because faith acts. So he sees their faith, and he said to the paralytic after the big dramatic entrance, you know, he's laying there, dead silent, everybody's, you know, leaning in, what's the Lord going to do with this guy that we've seen in our street forever? They all knew him. It's a small town. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven, and then a party broke out on the roof. Like these four guys with bleeding hands just started going nuts up there, man, because they were just psyched. The paralyzed guy, he's laying, still paralyzed, of course, but he's screaming, hallelujah, praise Jesus, you know. The Pharisees are high-fiving Christ, and they're all like, like a worship service. None of that happens. These guys on the roof are going, what did he say? Seriously? Think about it. They dug through the roof so the Lord would heal him. That's the point. Well, that's their point. I mean, it almost sounds like a cop-out, you know? I mean, if you're just sitting in the audience taking it in, wouldn't you be thinking to yourself, well, you know, maybe this is uh, just something that Jesus is looking at and thinking, I don't know, you know, I mean, I've healed the blind and all, but paralysis... I'm just going to go all spiritual on these guys and tell them his sins are forgiven... It's not what he's doing. And what he's doing is very informative. He heals this man of his greatest disability, and that's saying a lot when you consider the indignity of paralysis, particularly in the first century. Sin is our greatest disability, guys. And that too informs what we do. Jesus comes bringing a ministry of word and of deed, of word and of deed, of word and of deed. They are ever more connected. It's not just word or just deed. It's a both and. Son, your sins are forgiven, okay? So he cures him of his greatest disability and nobody's happy. 
Again, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And then it says, and now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, dangerous around the Son of God, and thinking, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which, I mean, is really sort of the point. But anyway, they missed that point. And immediately it says, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them. And I want you to notice this question. Because their hearts are not the only ones he reads. See, that's what struck me. I've done this story before many times and I love it. Never thought of this before. I ever live in the Lord's presence. He's everywhere present, and so do you. We live quorum Deo, before the face of God. Do we not? And doesn't He read my heart just like these guys? And doesn't He see my doubts? What are you struggling with Him over? What is it? We're talking about putting everything in the bag. That kind of brings some things to mind, doesn't it? I mean, it certainly is an expose on all of us to some degree. It's like, ah, oh, my hand's trembling when I put that one in. Put a little note on it unless I need it back. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, here's the question. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Can you take that into yourself for a moment? Then he says to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say rise, which is a language of resurrection. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And then he says, but that you may know. It's kind of like he's going, all right, just to prove it to you. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that when I say that sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. It's not a ploy. It's not a cop-out. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he then checked into a rehab facility, and he learned how to walk, you know, and he built up his muscles, and it took like nine months for this guy to even stand up. And then finally, you know, he went from a walker to a cane to a... Total healing. It says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And I love this. So that they were all amazed. No, really? And did what? And glorified God. There's the goal. Saying, we have never seen anything like this. And God deserves all the credit for that incredible salvation and for that incredible work of healing. There's no question about that. But please notice the fact that he not only worked through the Lord Christ to do it, but he also worked through four ordinary guys who just kind of understood, you know, my time, my talents, my treasure, my whatever, it's in the bag. That's where it is. And who found their thing and did it. They knew their part. And they played it. And the result was healing 
And the result was salvation. And the result was glory to who? To the Lord. If we're going to accomplish our mission as a church, then we each need to understand that our time, talents, and treasure are His. I mean, they just are. And that's gain, by the way. And then we need to find our thing and do it. We need to do and to play our part. Okay? All right. Well, a little over a year ago, in partnership with seven other churches here in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Rio Vista had the privilege of participating in the formation of a ministry called Hope South Florida, which is a ministry uh, that is a ministry to the homeless community here in Broward County, primarily. And many of you have been involved in that. You know, I mean, since that time, we've had people go to work for Hope South Florida. I think of Peter Clements and B.J. Bankin, who are both here somewhere. There's B.J. I saw Peter somewhere. So we have people employed there. We have people now on the board there. We have many people who are finding their thing and doing their thing as a volunteer there, which is incredibly exciting. I challenged you guys like 10 weeks ago. I said, okay, you got 10 weeks to get it done. By the way, you now have one week. But anyway, all right, so go over there and just serve a meal to these guys on a Monday night or a Thursday night. Just just do it, you know, and our community group had just done it, so I was sort of jacked about it at the time. So we've tried to do it again a couple times, and they keep saying, man, you know, we got so many real people coming. We don't need you till December. I'm like, yes. It's awesome. I shared with you last week, you know, we renovated a, a townhome for them and where homeless families are now living. And what I want to do next is to show you a video that was created by Hope South Florida. The network has grown to like 55 churches at this point, which is really amazing. That's the Lord, you know. I mean, you just, you know, nobody's that good. It's just Him. And it's going to show to you people, both from Rio and outside of Rio, who are doing what? They're finding their thing and doing it. They're investing their time and their talents and their treasure in this cause for the homeless in this community. And I want you to watch for the little girl at the end. She's a Rio girl. Her name is Riley. Her family is in my community group. She's in my wife's kid quest Kid Quest class, she's really a precious kid. I think you'll like her. But listen to the question she asks. And then I want to get up and hopefully answer it on the backside. So let's look at the video. Not going to lie, I love that kid. I shared with you guys last week that the average homeless family is a single mom, just like Melissa, but with three kids, uh, not one. Uh, right now, there are about 235 on a waiting list for housing in Broward County. About 100 of those spend the night on the street every night. Um, Hope South Florida turns away about 20 a night due to a lack of crisis and transitional housing. And I'd ask you to think about what that might feel like to turn them away, but also to be turned away and to enter into that. And so here's what we want to do. We know that we are not, in and of ourselves, the answer to the problem. But I think we're part of the answer to the problem. And if we can be part of the answer to the problem, and some other churches get inspired to be part of the answer to the problem, and then some other churches get inspired to be part of the answer to the problem, the problem begins to solve itself. I mean, it's a definable problem. And so here's what we want to do. Next week, after our service is over as an expression of level two, if you missed the message, you've got to hear it, generosity, meaning for those of us who are square with the Lord on our level one tithing, we want to take up a one-time offering or a one-year commitment if you want to do it that way.
um, to help create three to four units of housing for these ladies. That help South Florida will then case manage for us. They will place the ladies. They will bring their expertise and all of their services to the ladies. Uh, They will do all of that. They will train us to help us to know how to appropriately engage these women and bring loving community to these ladies. And we're going to do it, by the way. Come on, come on forward. These guys are going to give you a brochure. I forgot to say that. But do me the favor. Just like listen to me and read the brochure later. Okay, don't be me and have to read the brochure while I'm talking. This is going to answer a lot of your questions. But here's what we want to do. We want to raise a total of $450,000 together on top of that with in-kind gifts. We have a lot of people in the construction industry who are very much engaged in this already, and so we're counting on a lot of in-kind giving that they've already been indicating, yeah, we probably can help out with. And what we want to do is to take that and to do one of two things, either to build on a piece of property that we already have, a four-unit building that we've already designed, or to purchase units that already exist and to renovate. We're very much aware of the fact, you know, that this real estate market is such that, hey, it might be best to renovate and to, you know, build and renovate or buy and renovate than it is to build brand new. We get it. We got it. We're looking actually actively at properties currently. There are a few that are really very exciting, quite frankly, that could be a great renovation option. But the point is we want to take it and we either are going to build on the land that we have or we're going to purchase and renovate whatever is the most effective, efficient, and most responsible way of doing it. That's our plan, and that's our hope, okay? All right, if you have the brochure, I want you to take out one thing, and it looks like this. It says, leveraging my time, talent, and treasure, because I want you to prayerfully interact with it this week. And I want you to know, by the way, like if you're just starting to come to Rio and you're just kind of checking us out and you're thinking to yourself, oh, good grief, I can't come next week because I'm going to feel like, you know, the awkward duck in the room if I don't have a card with me and you're not ready to make some kind of a commitment. We're going to do this after the service and in such a way that nobody feels alienated, nobody feels weird, and nobody feels like, well, hey, if I'm not ready to turn in some kind of a card, you know, then I can't come worship and celebrate with you guys next week. No, come worship and celebrate with us next week. There's not going to be any pressure involved. That's just not who we are. It's not the way that we operate, okay? But I want to walk through this with you. Number one, I will take a fearless financial inventory. And so then if you're interested, for example, in the Storing Treasure Workshop, I had a conversation with somebody today who's going, hey, man, you know, we got the message last week, but we don't know how the message is going to happen. And I said, well, I think Storing Treasure is for you. It's a five-session class, and you see the dates for that. The second thing that you can check off, something that you're interested in, is what's called the Generosity Encounter. The Generous Church Organization is going to come and do a half-day seminar for us on a Saturday all about generosity. It's for everybody, by the way, and we think it's going to be really enjoyable and really awesome. So if you're interested in that, you can check that off. Connect with a financial coach to develop a strategy for financial freedom and generosity. We have a number of really financially minded people in this congregation. I think five or six of them now have stepped forward and said, you know, I'd be willing to meet with folks and help them get it figured out. I've got news for you. If my wife was not a CPA, I'd be all over that. It'd be like, yeah, sign me up for that. But just one more benefit to being married to her. So there are many. All right. The second thing, I will take a fearless inventory of my time and talent of my time and talent. 
I'd like to take the starting point class. That is a class that you have to take before you can become a member at Rio. However, you can take the class and not become a member, so it doesn't obligate you to anything. And we've had so many people coming to us going, hey, man, when are you going to offer the membership class? And we're like, you know what? We are so maxed right now that my emails are coming back as 10-4. So, like, when it works, and December, it seems, because that's not a busy time of year. But that's your shot, okay? And then we'll offer it again at the beginning of next year sometime. But really, that's a three-week deal. Notice the next one. I will complete the Find Your Thing, Do Your Thing assessment online or at the Information Center. What is that thing? That is a tool that we've created to help you figure out what part of the body you are. And then, having figured it out, to know who to engage with and how to engage with us so that you can get involved because we need every part to play their part. We really do. All right, number three, I will pursue level one giving. I am ready and able to begin tithing. Or I will begin working toward a tithe and hopefully take the storing treasure class. But notice there's no number, okay? All right, number four, I am good with level one, and I'm ready to pursue level two, and I'd like to help single moms like Melissa. So here's my one-time gift, and we do actually need a number for that. I mean, we've got to be able to calculate this. Or here's my one-year pledge. And the only people who are going to see this card that you hand in, if you do, next week after the service in a way that doesn't make you feel all pressured and weird, okay, is going to be one person from our finance team and the two people who every week handle our finances. I'm not going to see it. Matt's not going to see it. Our pastoral staff does not look at our financial stuff. We don't know who gives what. We just don't. It's just a matter of principle. We've always not done that. And then lastly, number five, I may have the ability to make an in-kind contribution, and you can see the list of different things that you can contribute on an in-kind basis. Lots of people are able to do that. We've had a number of folks already engage with us on that. And in the FAQ that you find in your brochure, there's contact information for one of the guys on our construction team. You can call him directly, reach out to him via email, and begin to figure out how you can engage, because that's really significant, and that's a big part of what we're hoping to get done. All right, so here's my request. You ready? I want you to pray. I want you to pray for us. I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for each other. I want you to lay your life before the Lord and to pray to Him. And I want you to ask Him what He wants you to do. There is a preferable future for us. There is a could and should be for the glory of Christ, that people might be amazed and go, wow, I glorify God for this. That can and will be if we really and truly put it all in the bag and say, all right, in community, I'm in. I'm in. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to ask Matt to come on up and to close us out and ask you guys to come back next week with energy.